And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So I grew up in a home where Christian music was very prevalent. Uh, Some of this was the folk music that was being used in many Catholic and Episcopal churches at that time. We were all kind of on the same page. Y'all remember the glory and praise books? And I I get a scowl from Vivian. (laughs) That's the soundtrack of my childhood. Um, (laughs) Some of it was... uh, was much of it was kids' music that was designed to help us learn the Bible stories, the messages, that sort of thing. And then some of it was some of the early recordings of what we would now call the CCM movement, um, the contemporary Christian music, the kind of thing you might hear on K-Love. Um, that was way before it was such a big business. These were all really low production, early, early recordings, tapes, eight tracks even. What's an eight track? Um, yeah, all of that sort of thing. Well, because of one of these proto-CCM songs, a verse I had memorized at a very early age was the second half of Zechariah 4, 6, where we're told, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It's always a challenge for God's people to remember to rely on God rather than to rely on their own power might, smarts, or abilities. And that's a a lesson that the Israelites were constantly being taught. The context for this famous verse, in fact, is that um, uh, was God speaking to Zerubbabel, who is the one that led the Jews back from captivity, back from exile into the Holy Land, back to the Promised Land. Now, Zerubbabel was appointed by Darius on behalf of King Cyrus, to be the governor of Judah and to begin the, to begin the rebuilding of the temple. And if, when you look at things, uh, Zerubbabel was in the Davidic line. He had rights to the, to the throne of David. But by this point, we don't have Jewish kings in the Holy Land. We don't have a Davidic king. The best you can hope to be is a governor under some foreign king. Zerubbabel faced many daunting challenges with a mere remnant of God's people. This did not look like what you pictured hearing God's promises. Nevertheless, God promises to be with him. God promises that it is by the Holy Ghost he would have success. It would not be by earthly effort, earthly might, or earthly power. Now, I couldn't help but think of this this verse when I was uh, reading this morning's Old Testament lesson, Uh, Signed for morning prayer, the lesson that was chosen to go with our epistle and gospel that we just read today. So we didn't read this, but we'll read it now. And it's designed to go with the readings that we just read. This is Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. Deuteronomy 21. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be, when ye are come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint, fear not, and do not tremble. Neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So here in Deuteronomy, the Israelites are about to enter the promised land. That's the context 
of Deuteronomy, and they know that they're going to be outnumbered and outgunned by their enemies. In fact, the previous generation, 40 years earlier, had gotten to the promised land. They sent spies in, and they got scared, and they said, we can't do this. And so God said, oh yeah, that's the way it's going to be. Um, You guys need a a 40-year lesson. That two-week journey now took 40 years uh, because of that lack of faith. And, And the truth is, they will not have the might nor the power to be successful in taking the land as God has commanded, not on their own strength. It's, it's, it's a reality. So the law of Moses required that every male aged 20 to 60 is going to be ready to fight in the army. They had a, a mandatory service um, situation in ancient Israel, and actually in modern Israel too. So God commands that one of the priests is going to approach and give the soldiers a bit of a pep talk before battle. So as uh, Father Eric could tell you, the chaplain corps goes way back. (laughs) The priest's job is to remind the army that God is fighting their battles for them. They're not alone. Just as they had seen miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness, so God would be with them and fight for them when they got into the promised land. So then after the priest gives his pep talk, the officers, the top brass of the army, they're going to go before the rest of the soldiers with a bit of a plot twist. This is verse 5. So Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. And it shall be when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. So before appointing the sergeants and other NCOs, as we might say today, the top brass of the Israelite army dismisses a bunch of the soldiers. Um, we, have, we, have, we have at least one, two military officers, former military officers here today. Last service, we had a former general. Y'all wouldn't do that. <laughs> you would not send a bunch of the army home. It's, this is very counterintuitive, to say the least. If you just built a house, if you just planted a vineyard, if you just got engaged, or if you were even just afraid, you are told to go home. And this is not a tactic that was there to shame the soldiers. This was not the, um, the drill sergeant from a full metal jacket. This was, uh, this was not reverse psychology. This was a way that God is going to prove that he's the one fighting their battles. In the book of Judges, we have the story of Gideon, where Gideon is, does this exact thing. Following this text from Deuteronomy, he dismisses a good chunk of the army just, again, based on what we read here in Deuteronomy. And then God says, you still have too many soldiers. And so Gideon takes the army to get a drink from, of water from the brook, and he dismisses all but a handful of soldiers based on a, frankly, arbitrary criteria of whether you scooped up the water in your hands or you 
knelt down to lick, to, to lick it up like a dog. I mean, there's no, that's just arbitrary. It's just a way of separating one set from the other set. There's no, there's no lesson there. It's just completely arbitrary. And what God does is that he brings an amazing victory with a ridiculously small army. And the Old Testament is full of similar stories. It's not the first time God does something like this. But it's also full of counterexamples, the other side of the coin. When the king and the people and the leadership trust God, it doesn't matter if the odds were stacked against them, they're going to succeed. But when the king and the people become self-reliant, or when they rely on earthly saviors and false gods, no advantage, no matter how great, was going to help them. And we do see many of those counterexamples in the Bible. The end of the books of Kings and Chronicles, it reads like a slow train wreck as we watch idolatry and rebellion make exile and destruction increasingly inevitable. You see it coming, and it's hard to watch. God warns them. He pleads with them. He sends prophet after prophet to set them right, but the Israelites won't listen. They simply will not trust God. In today's gospel, we have another counterexample. So this is Luke 14, beginning at verse 16, page 192 in your prayer book. Luke 14, 16. A certain man made a great supper and bade many and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. So when we look at the first part of the gospel, all those excuses, you can see why the folks who revised our daily office lectionary almost a century ago chose Deuteronomy 20 as that Old Testament correspondent. Because in both passages, in our gospel and in Deuteronomy 20, Uh, We see people with new homes, new agricultural endeavors, new business, new wives. Yet there's a big difference. In Deuteronomy, they're commanded to go home, while the people in our gospel are condemned for staying home. So what is the difference? Well, in short, we have here an issue of where you put your trust. Is your trust in God or is it in yourself? St. Cyril of Alexandria has an excellent observation about those who refused the invitation in our gospel. He writes this, By senselessly giving themselves up to these earthly matters, they cannot see things spiritual. Conquered by the love of the flesh, they are far from holiness. They are covetous and greedy after wealth. They seek things that are below, but make no account in the slightest degree of the hopes that are stored up with God. It would be far better to gain the joys of paradise instead of earthly fields and temporary furrows. 
So as St. Cyril notes, the supper in our gospel is a symbol for the kingdom of God. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And um, incidentally, in our, in our, uh, in our uh, prayer book at the, at the end of the communion service and the exhortations, it also points us to communion. Keep that in the back of your mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have here the supper of the Lamb. So rejecting God's invitation to the supper, that is a grievous sin indeed. The new homes, the new oxen, the new vineyards, the new wives, these are not bad things in of themselves. In fact, they're very good. They're blessings from God. (coughs) That's why in Deuteronomy, the soldiers are dismissed to enjoy those blessings. God's fighting their battles, and so he allows them to go home and enjoy the blessings that he's given them. But in our gospel reading, God has offered the guests guests an even greater blessing. He's offered them an ultimate blessing, a blessing to which no earthly blessings can ever hope to compare. And yet the guests choose the lesser good. They choose the gift rather than the giver. They choose the creature rather than the creator. And because of this, they lose their inheritance. Ironically, and in God's mercy, the plot twist is that he then invites the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind, and then those that are in the highways and the hedges. The church fathers and the reformers all agreed that this is Jesus um, speaking the parable about the gospel going out to the Gentiles, to those who were outside of Israel's covenant. So the scribes and the Pharisees, the folks who were supposed to have been leading God's people and looking to the coming kingdom, they lose out. And then the pagans are invited to leave the highways and the hedges and come to the Lamb's Supper. Now looking at these two readings, there are two lessons for us today that I see. First of all, as a Christian as one who has been united to Christ by faith and by baptism, as one who has been called by the Lord and brought into his family, you do not work and fight on your own strength. God is in control. God is fighting your battles. Christ has shed his blood for you. So as you war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, know that it is by God's spirit that you have the victory. You can enjoy the good things that God has given you. You can enjoy your families, your honest work, your friends, your homes. Victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil is not about extreme asceticism. It's not about becoming weird for the sake of the kingdom. We're called to just live our lives as God has called us to, as God has given us to, to his glory. So... That means you can step away from those uh, online theological battles or culture war issues and take your wife out to get some ice cream. Take the kids to the park. Fire up the grill with your neighbors. Have a drink with your friend. And always give thanks for what God has done in your life. Second, the other side of the coin, is if you're reading these passages, if you're listening to this homily, if you're sitting in these pews, Know that you have been called to the Lord's house and to his table. That's why you're here. You have been called. So come to him. Don't make excuses. Put aside whatever things are holding you back and hindering you and come to Christ. Repent of your sins and be reconciled unto God. 
Don't make the gifts that God has given you into an idol. Instead, use them with thanksgiving, always remembering the one who gave them to you. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, who said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.